That's such a great moment at the end of the play where he's like, I think there must be six Richmonds on the battlefield today. I've killed six people. Where's the real Richmond? Yeah. Hello, No Script listeners. Welcome back. This is No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I'm Jackson Nikolai. And it is a very exciting episode. It's a very special episode to us, if you can believe it. This is episode number 50. 50! Uh, Halfway to 100! We're, well, that's one way to think of it. I like to think of it as 50 is an achievement of its own. Across two seasons, we have discussed and and looked at 50 different scripts, if you include this one. Uh, we're so excited to be here, and we are very excited for what we have decided to do for our yeah. 50th episode. If you look at the scope of our other 49 discussions, you may notice a glaring hole. Yeah, <laughs> a, a black hole, if you will. In, if if in, you will, in, in the scripts that we have chosen, there is something missing. That absence seems overwhelming, and we couldn't. We did not feel like we could move forward without coming to this playwright, these kinds of works. And so we are here on episode 50 as sort of a celebration because I think we both love the kinds of stuff we're about to talk about. And so some of it's fun for us, not only uh, making sure that we fill a major hole in our discussions. What are we doing today, Jackson? We are talking about the immortal bard himself, the writer of so many histories, tragedies, comedies, the immortalized William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, we have arrived. After 49 episodes that weren't about Shakespeare, we finally (laughs) arrived at our first Shakespeare on episode 50. Very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. And to kind of do this this play that we'll be doing. This play we're doing today is Richard III, as you've probably read by the title at this point. But Richard III, kind of an unexpected choice. I'm excited that we get to do it because uh, I, I haven't really gotten much of a chance to talk about it before. So I'm super psyched to get to talk about this one. Before we jump into the conversation, though, I did want to take a second and say uh, thank you to everyone who supports the show and point all of you who do support the show over to Patreon as well. Thank you to everyone who has gone over there already and checked it out. Um, but uh, we have a Patreon page over there at patreon.com slash podcast, And that's because while we love doing this show, this show is a, a passion project for us in a lot of ways. It's great for us to get to talk about it and to share the conversation with you on all our social media and, and getting to hear back from you all about this stuff. However, the show itself is not free to make. Uh, there's a significant time uh, amount involved in putting on this show as well as a monetary amount as well that we pay you know monthly fees to keep the the broadcasting of this of this show up and the best way if you have been uh either from the beginning from episode one with a uh, sweat by lynn nottage all the way up to now episode 50 or uh have jumped on board at any other time if you want to support the show uh head on over to patreon there's a number of tiers over there one dollar five dollar uh, we have a d- different sets of rewards for those access to patron only posts uh you could become a producer for the show uh we'll say your name at the beginning at that $5 level. So some good stuff happening over there. So go ahead and check it out over on Patreon. 
And uh, yeah, that's 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 it's a great way. Thank you all for heading over there and and being a part of keeping this show running. Of course, there's a, a an incredible sort of historical connection to patronage. We are talking about William Shakespeare. Playwrights at the time were all supported by patronage, and the arts even today is supported by patronage. People who want to lend their money to the work that artists are doing. So we are asking you to jump in on the tradition that was around even back when William Shakespeare was newly writing plays like Richard III for $1 a month. Just Become $1. a patron of No Script Podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's jump in. We got we got to do <laughs> this one is going to take some work, right? We're going to start with some context and some synopsis and then jump in. Yes, this different maybe than some of our other plays to discuss to set everything up for the discussion of Richard the 3rd. You're going to have to bear with us for just a little bit of time here as we do the work to do the synopsis. I'm going to give you just a brief context a little bit about where the play comes from, where it occurred, some things that have happened with it as we try to do every episode, but then we're going to try to tag team the work of explaining where the play comes from and it's in the cycle of plays and where the characters are at and what happens in the course of Richard III. So, Richard III is uh, one of the histories that is involved in a cycle, as we'll discuss here in a minute. It was probably first produced uh, way, way back in like 16, we think maybe 1633. Um, maybe it was King Charles and Queen Henrietta who watched it the, for the first time back in 1633. So very, very old play. Not our oldest. As you'll know, we have done a Greek play prior to, so that would come earlier. But definitely either the second or if I'm forgetting one obvious one, then the third. But I think probably the second oldest play. Um, Look, across the globe, people have done productions of Richard III. Famous actors have played it across the globe, across history. Some of the notable things that you might have seen or still could see, there are three very well-known film adaptions of it. One with Laurence Olivier as Richard III. Of course, the Ian McKellen Richard III, which is maybe the best-known film adaption. Incredible, incredible performance by McKellen. And then there's a newer one where, if you don't know about this, you should. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Richard III in an adaption that's part of that Hollow Crown um, BBC series where they're walking through some of the histories. I think this is in season two of that series, right, Jackson, where they covered the second trilogy of histories, and Cumberbatch plays Richard III across that season, quote-unquote, which is really just three of Shakespeare's history plays. Um the 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 historical significance of this script is is throughout right the quotes of it exist everywhere the analogies to the character richard iii exist everywhere kevin spacey is famous for saying that his character in house of cards is richard iii a newly imagined richard iii of course something like the king's speech lots of people compare richard iii as sort of um the opposite of the character in the king's speech that one of the themes is sort of the good king as opposed to the bad king Richard III in that famous movie if you know V for Vendetta uh, there's some great <laughs> Richard III quotes in that movie it has it, its its roots are everywhere probably because especially of its famous famous 
title character, Richard III, the, the mad, tyrannical genius. Yeah, yeah, and all his machinations, and, and yeah, absolutely. He's a character that you can grab onto and, and sticks with you for a while. All right, so here comes the synopsis, right? This is going to be, we're going to try to briefly summarize the Hundred Years' War, the conflict of the War of the Roses, give you a brief history on the Plantagenets and the Lancasters, or I'm sorry, the Plantagenets and the Tudors, and then jump into the play itself. So, <laughs> the events of the Henry Cycle, uh, starting all the way back at Henry IV, Henry V, all have to do with the Hundred Years' War and England and France fighting. Um, we're not going to get into that too much, but that's all happening before. Henry V dies, and then his son Henry VI takes over. And that's the, the three-part series of plays right before Richard III, which is Henry VI. Now, during that time, everything is starting to fall apart in England. They've kind of won the war in France. They, they've, they've gotten the upper hand, and uh, they're, they've... <laughs> determined that they are kings of France now. and uh, But then it all starts to fall apart for them. There's a large conflict between the families of York and Lancaster, which are the Plantagenets and the Tudors. And that um, conflict uh, rules most of the Henry VI plays. How am I doing so far, Jacob? Right, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> major major points before Richard III. Civil war between the Lancasters and the Yorks. Who is going to sit on the throne? Henry VI is a Lancaster. He has a son that's in line to be heir for the throne. In the plays prior to Richard III, the Yorks, which is the family of Richard III, stage their rebellion, brutally win. They murder the son of Henry VI, who would have been the next king, they murder the king, Henry VI, they take power. Richard III's brother, King Edward, becomes <laughs> the new, the one of the many Edwards. So many Edwards. So many Edwards. And, and, and this is just all stuff that you maybe don't have to know to get the play, but will help right. if you're going to talk about the play. Yeah. So Richard III's brother of the family York takes over the throne of England. This is where the Richard III begins. Richard III begins with a soliloquy from our friend Richard, who says, of course famously, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York, i.e., now is the wartime, the terrible time, the civil conflict over, the winter of our discontent over, and made glorious summer, made peacetime and awesomeness by this son of York, by this York member of the York family, King Edward, who now sits on the throne. That's where we begin. Lancasters have been defeated and murdered, many of them. Except for Richmond, who will become an important Lancaster later on, who flees away and is, I believe, living in France, basically hiding from yep. the wrath of the York family. So... This is where we start. What right. happens in the play as the Yorks are in power? Three brothers, Edward, Clarence, Richard, their family now owns the throne. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and then we kind of enter into the character that is Richard, right? Uh, Richard, who is often, most of the time in the play, referred to as the Duke of Gloucester. But we're going to refer to him as Richard most of the time, I think. <laughs> so um, Richard is... Uh, is right away from the beginning on a journey to take the throne. Um, he, he starts off right away kind of starting these machinations in place to become king. Um, 
that some of it is is kind of shocking when you're just reading the play itself, uh, just just the play alone, because you're like, wait, wait, why? <laughs> why do you want to take the throne? Why is Richard so darn evil? Why yeah. <laughs> does he want to kill members of his own family to assume the power of the throne? He tells us why in the right. opening soliloquy. Let's skip it for now, try to get the plot, and then let's make that our first point of discussion. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to this moment. Sounds good. Okay, so pl- rest of the plot of the play is Richard uh, getting his brothers out of the way and uh, then kind of working his way up to the kingship of the land by manipulating various other dukes and lords and people around him, killing various yeah, people Brutally around him. murdering like yep. 10, 12 people along the way. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and along the way, uh, kind of descending into a madness of sorts. Certainly a paranoia, depending on how you want to play Richard. Um, prophecy is a huge deal in this play. I'm sure we're going to talk about that eventually. Curses. He is pro- yep, curses and prophecy. The other character of, of note from the previous plays, especially, that had some dominance is uh, Margaret, who is the widow of the former king. So this is a have- Lancaster. The wife of King Henry VI, the mother of the murdered Prince Lancaster, uh, who is still around. (laughs) Yep. She's around the castle. They didn't kill her for some reason, even though she had a a heavy hand in a lot of the goings on. She had an army that uh, sacked York at one point. So uh, there was she she was a. Why (laughs) is she still walking around? (laughs) Right. But she is walking around kind of in disarray at this point. All of her her family has been killed. She's wandering around kind of Ophelia-like uh, from Hamlet. She is uh, wandering around the place uh, somewhat uh, 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 crazy, maybe too far of a word, but she is kind of railing against people within the castle in quite a bit. deep, deep grief, deep, yeah. um, desperate grief. She exhibits ne- numerous curses on the family of York that now occupies the throne. She talks all about how, as a queen, she had these sons and families and powers and people who love her, and she saw all that come to naught, and how this new family of York is going to have the same thing. Their family and sons and daughters and people who love them, all of it's going to come to naught. They're going to be just like her. She sets the curse. She talks about how all the people who help them are going to die. And that's fairly early in the play, really before most of Richard III's machinations and plans have actually come into effect. Let's see if I can hit through the major things that Richard III does to come to power. And then we'll have you take over and describe how it all goes at the end. Sure. So this is the major things that Richard III does to come to power. First, he convinces his brother, King Edward, that their their other brother, Clarence, the Duke, no, George, the Duke of Clarence, that that Clarence has been plotting against Edward to claim the throne. It all has to do with an old prophecy about how somebody with the name G was going to take the throne from King Edward and George's name begins with a D. Interestingly, of course, Richard is also Richard Duke of Gloucester, and that also (laughs) begins with a G, but I guess King Edward didn't think about that one. Um, So Richard convinces Edward to imprison Clarence. Later on, Richard has Clarence murdered in the jail and claims that it was Edward's orders that murdered him. So that moves one piece out of the way. Now somebody else in line for the throne is gone. Next, King Edward happens to be ill. 
a little deus machina, that he doesn't have to murder the king. The king just dies. Uh, he dies sort of from shock, learning that it was his order that kills Clarence. So now who's in line for the throne? King Edward's sons. So Richard maneuvers some of the other lords to kind of be on his side. And they begin to, they first, they get the son who's going to become king to London. And then they basically start all these rumors that the son was actually a bastard son and isn't really in line for the throne. Then Richard, with all of his friends, especially Buckingham and Catesby, uh, convinced the citizens of London, especially the powerful citizens, to come and want Richard to be king instead because he's truly in line for the throne. And Edward's sons are, uh, you know, like we said, are, are illegitimate children. So Richard reluctantly accepts quote unquote reluctantly accepts and that's how he's crowned king he then later has the princes murdered yep let's see did I hit it I mean there's there's lots of twists and turns in there of all those characters but that's kind of the path forward to kingdom for Richard yeah, those are the big beats, the people that he got out of the way uh, in the line of the throne. In the in the meantime, he got you know the 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 kind of other satellite things that are happening. He's getting rid of all of their supporters. He outmaneuvers the queen. He outmaneuvers a bunch of lords who are on the queen's side, and uh, mostly with the help of Buckingham. Buckingham does a lot of work in the play for Richard. Um, uh, maneuvers that out pretty well. So then he is crowned king. And uh, almost right away, he starts uh, getting hit by other things coming across. Richmond, who we have uh, aforementioned, hearing of the savagery of Richard, hearing the rumors of the savagery of what is happening in the people there, he takes advantage of some of the Lord's uh, reaction to that and begins building support for his return. Richmond is again a Lancaster from the previous War of Roses who has uh, gone away to France uh, and is gathering troops to return. And uh, so Richard receives word of that and that sets off his own prophecy. He said it had been prophesied to him twice that uh, when he heard the name Richmond, he would die soon after. Um, once, uh, I forget the other one, but one of them was by an Irish bard had prophesied yeah, to him. Yeah, an that, Irish bard. <laughs> yeah, that, that when that happened, it would, it would occur. So he starts um, getting, getting that in order. But the other big thing that happens is after he has proved or so, quote unquote, proved that his nephews, the sons of King Edward the <laughs> Fourth, um, are are bastard children. He tells Buckingham to kill them, and Buckingham won't. And so he well, falls. He- he hesitates. He's, he hesitates, <laughs> right, <laughs> which Richard jumps on right away. And so then he assigns it to other people, and his close circle begins to fall away around him as he becomes more and more paranoid. Um, he trusts people less. He keeps changing who's, who he's giving orders to, and uh, then the, the, he ultimately does kill his two nephews. And that starts to drive even more of the dukes away. This kind of savagery is not palatable to a lot of the people around him. Right. So the the major two defectors that kind of caused the end of the play are Buckingham, who because uh, Richard didn't give Buckingham what he promised, and perhaps because Buckingham is seeing the savagery of killing the young princes, the nephews, even after he's claimed the throne, Buckingham defects and joins Richmond's side. Then Stanley, who is Richmond's father-in-law, Stanley is among the family of the York, but is by marriage has a Lancaster as his son-in-law. Stanley secretly defects, ends up being sort of a traitor at the end. The end of the play is Richmond and Richard go to war. 
Uh, there's some great scenes in their camp the night before the battle as Richard's plagued by nightmares and Richmond is, is wooed by dreams, uh, beautiful dreams. They come to the final battle. They each give a big speech to their armies, uh, kind of highlighting who they are as people. They come to battle. Richard III is killed. Richmond claims the throne by marrying the previous King Edward, the King Edward that Richard III killed, by marrying his daughter. Then they unite the House of York and the House of Lancaster. Again, Richmond being a Lancaster, the daughter of King Edward, I think her name is Elizabeth, being uh, a York. Those two are married and they claim the throne, ending the Civil War, ending the final beat of the War of Roses, uniting England uh, in holy uh, rule, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All this, this, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thus ends the conflict. <laughs> that is Richard III. It's a lot of maneuvering yeah. and a lot of keeping track of characters. Good productions probably need to combine some characters to some degree, help the audience understand what all these lords' significances are. But yep. really, Richard III is about Richard III, the yeah. mad tyrant. Yeah, yeah, and and all of his kind of slow walk as he as he brings people around and maneuvers everything. He he has this he has this he has t- kind of two journeys that I see him making. Um, one one is just maybe less of a journey and and just where he rests and he tries to get out of there sometimes, but he doesn't. And then one is uh, a plot wise journey. The plot wise journey is him wrecking people around him pretty much <laughs> like he he, yeah, in he the, wins um, a in, bunch of conflicts in the hollow crown version of richard iii where bennett cumberbatch is richard one of the long images used throughout the play is chess richard iii loves in that version to play chess it's not in the text anywhere but it's certainly in the character loves to play sure, chess yeah. with anyone and everyone he's constantly got a chessboard in front of him and that's kind of the journey you're describing is a journey of outmaneuvering opponents, moving the pieces, killing off the pieces when they're not in your best interest anymore, and claiming the king. Mm-hmm. The other journey, or we can, we can talk about whether it's a journey or not, but is this kind of loathing that he has about himself, and then a perceived loathing, or perhaps a true loathing, from everyone else around him. Um, what we haven't really described so far is that Richard, or yeah, Richard has a physical deformity, has a large hump on his shoulder, um, and uh, he has some uh, spinal uh, misalignment, and so he is often uh, kind of a hunched over character. You will see him play. And his as. arm is withered and 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 unusable, and he's got a, a severe problem in his leg. There's all kinds of language throughout about he how he was sort of half made, and he's uh, you know. A, a broken mirror, bad to look at, etc. Of course, yeah. that's all uh, really harsh language about somebody with a physical deformity, with uh, you know some some disability that he's trying to overcome, and that probably explains to some degree his villainy. I love that you described those two plots, Jackson, because I think they're the two sides to Richard. If you ever have uh, hours and hours of free time and really <laughs> want to to dig into this 
this character, this story, I would recommend watching the McKellen version and the Cumberbatch version side by side. I got to do that this week. And the two actors, of course, two of the greatest British actors of all time, play those two sides of Richard III incredibly differently. McKellen's Richard III is sort of a sociopathic maneuverer who's, who's just, who just gets joy in, in just winning, yeah, who, who's constantly smiling throughout the play every time something goes his way and who's, got his char- who's charming and, and sociable. And really the physical part of him doesn't show that much. He, he has got a great thing where he keeps his hand in his pocket the whole play or the whole movie. Cumberbatch's Richard III is Gollum-like. Yeah. He's hunched over mm-hmm. so much, and he's always alone and in the dark and growling and angry. And those are, I think they're the two worlds of Richard III. Even the opening soliloquy, where he descri- he tells us why he's doing what he's doing, we think, those are the two themes that come out. One of them is, I'm so ugly, I'm so rejected, I'm so deformed that I have nothing to do with society. So when everything's pleasant and fun, people don't want me at their dinner parties. They don't want me to hang out with them. And side by side, he also describes how he's uh, he his mind moves in plots, how he's bored with a world where nothing is happening. And yeah. so he puts his own plots in place. He creates his own civil war somewhat just for the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get the sense that his brothers around him depend on him a lot to be the warlike one of them. Um, that they, they, they are all warlike brothers, but uh, Richard is repeatedly brought up by other people as just terrifying on on battlefields and places. Even even the end of the play, um, though he loses to Richmond. Right before he does so, he comes on and people are saying <laughs> he's been fighting all day. And he comes on and he says, I've killed five Richmonds. Where's yeah, the real Richmond? <laughs> that's such a great moment at the end of the play where he's like, I think there must be six Richmonds on the battlefield today. I've killed six people. Where's the real Richmond? Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's a terror. Um on on battlefields and 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 I, I agree that he lives into conflict and and kind of glories and revels in it. Um, he's he's he, in some ways he's in it for the game, but it's because uh, he can't he he he's can't be a part of the peace game. Even even the opening uh, monologue. I want to find the line. Uh, why I in this weak piping time of peace. Um, <laughs> weak piping time of peace have no delight to pass away the time unless to see my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. Um, he's, he's bored and, and reminded of his deformity in times of peace. Um, so, so th- th- one nice thing about this play, side note, is we can quote as much of it as we want in this one. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of right. nice. <laughs> that is right. And of course, I mean, he says in this opening soliloquy, clearly and openly and there's room for interpretation but he tells us he's going to be the bad guy right away and he says since i cannot prove a lover to entertain these well fair spoken days i am determined to prove a villain yeah because because he's um you know because he's rejected because he's uh ugly because he's deformed and he cannot be part of the society of peace where him and his family are large and in charge and enjoying their life because he can't have that he's determined to prove a villain 
So he says. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting question. Why then? What is our relationship to Richard throughout this play? He's, he starts up saying that he's a villain. Um, that 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 his his machinations will win in the end, and then we go on the ride with him. How how do you feel watching Richard throughout this play? <laughs> I guess how it's kind of a jumping I off. Feel part. yeah, I mean it's horrible, of course. <laughs> yeah. The things that he does are tyrannical, and that's really what comes out of the play of Richard is that he he goes from this sort of crafty reject to a, a mad tyrant. Now, at the same time as it's terrible, Shakespeare has written him as the protagonist. Yeah. He is, he is simultaneously not the hero, but the villain, clearly, and the protagonist. And that's why Richard III, among all of the histories, maintains the one that people probably can recognize the quickest. Because, and I'm not, I'm not well-versed enough in theater of the time to tell you that this was something brand new or anything like that, but it has had staying power, this world Shakespeare imagined, where someone can simultaneously be the protagonist and the villain. Right. Yeah, that's that's the and, and that that is carried through into into other situations as well. You've already mentioned House of Cards as an as an example of 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 that kind of you watch someone do awful awful things and and somehow you keep watching. I'm also reminded of Game of Thrones and the sensation yeah. that it is. Like these you are watch awful them and people. It's <laughs> you know, are you rooting for them? I kind you know, sometimes. of sometimes <laughs> like, <laughs> you have to kind of catch yourself and examine why because the story is so laser focused on Richard's rise to power and his maintaining of his power y- you you find yourself if you're swept up in the story if not on his side in a moral sense on his side in a story sense right wanting to see what he's going to do next to claim what his ultimate goal is from the beginning, to claim the crown. And then, for me, the play, the play's hinge, where it goes from one thing to the other, is when he claims the crown. And then, Richard becomes a man without a goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really, see if you agree with me on this, Jackson, it's not until the rebellion starts that we see the old Richard come back. There's mm. several scenes there where he's, he's a man lost. He doesn't know what he's doing, so he's making enemies out of his friends, you know? Before all this rebellion stuff starts, he goes after Buckingham for hesitating briefly at the mention of killing two innocent children. Right. And suddenly he turns on Buckingham. You know, he's making conflict where there isn't any because that's his default. That's where his comfortability lies. And then as soon as there's a rebellion, he's hopped into place. You know, he says something right. like, we have to move in haste when the rebels are in the land. Yeah. And, yep. there, and suddenly he's got plans again, things mm-hmm. he can do again, forward action again. And he becomes the old Richard that we know and love. Right. No. And well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he, he becomes much more charismatic in those situations, too. He's a fairly charismatic individual. He can get people on his side, but he, he needs a purpose for it. And and so so that after he's alienated some of his close friends, we've mentioned Buckingham a couple times. Buckingham is does a lot for him. Like he he makes him king. 
Uh, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that. He, he is the person who liaisons between the mayor of London, the lords of London, the people of London, and get them to come to this, this delightfully faux uh, moment where he's praying with two, <laughs> with two priests. What a scene. <laughs> Just so staged. An incredible scene. It's so staged. The, Buckingham has brought the mayor and the other higher-ups in England to Richard's door. This is after they have claimed that Edward's children are bastards. So Richard is the only York capable of taking the throne. So Buckingham convinces all these lords and powerful people to come to Richard's door. And prior to this scene, we've seen them plan what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is Richard's inside praying with two monks. Right. And he like won't come out. Right. (laughs) And they like see him through the door that opens when they send in Catesby as a messenger. And they see him kneeling between the two monks. And and (laughs) Buckingham says, oh, look, see, he's praying, kneeling between the two monks. Not This is no King Edward. Remember when Edward would be out gallivanting with different people about the town? This man is truly a king worthy of England. (laughs) Yes. And finally, when Richard does come out, he, he refuses the crown several times talking about how modest he is and about how he doesn't want such power lent on his own back and how he really should find a different person. And finally, he relents and accepts the kingship. (laughs) And the dramatic irony is so incredible, not only because we know Richard III wants to be king, but also because they've planned this whole thing out, like I said. And (laughs) in fact, in the previous scene, they've talked about how much Richard is going to deny the crown before he decides (laughs) to accept it. Yep. <laughs> I so love in the in the McKellen version there's this great moment where they're planning this scene and he's like, "Oh, you should be holding a prayer book." And he just hands him like any old book off the shelf. And McKellen's <laughs> like, "What? Huh?" He kind of shrugs at the book and they pull the sleeve off of the book and it's just a plain black book. He's like, "A prayer book." <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, so so dishonest, but but we're we're kind of welcomed into that, right? By being seeing these behind the scenes moments. A lot of this kind of feels like we are Richard's confidant in all of this. We this- are. I mean, we absolutely are. He soliloquies yeah. to us, I suppose. I suppose some productions might decide that the soliloquy is not to the audience, but typically uh, a character soliloquy is to the audience and Richard spends a fair chunk of this play telling us what his plans are, what his dreams are, what his ideas are. Yeah. And is his really personal reactions to things, too. There's this one kind of really awful scene, uh, as many of the scenes in this play are, but uh, really uh, intricate scenes where he is... uh, uh, speaking to the widow of the former king's son. Uh, so the, the heir apparent, the Prince of Wales, who is also an Edward, Edwards. So the former King Ed- <laughs> King Edward's son, Edward, the Prince of Wales, was married to Lady Anne. Um, this is and- a Lancaster. Edward the Lancaster, yep. the Lancaster prince who was killed in the previous stories, was married yep. to Anne. And, in the, mm. and I think the second scene of the play is... Is uh, the the funeral dirge or the the coffin of Edward the Fourth? The king is walking by, and Lady Anne is mourning her father-in-law, who is being the Lancaster by. king that was killed in the war. Yes. So she is she is mourning him as he's walking by, and uh, and Richard comes to that that place and confesses his love or probably just lust for her. Um, and uh, and and this interaction 
ensues of of him kind of trying to woo her away in the midst of her grief um from from uh grief grief of her husband and her father-in-law who have now died he tries to woo her away from that Right, so he killed with his own hand the previous king who was a Lancaster and the Lancaster prince who was Queen Anne's husband. He killed them both, and he tells us in the soliloquy before this scene, I'm going to go try to win Lady Anne for political reasons, um, but even though I'm the person that killed her husband and, and, and her father-in-law, <laughs> and right. then he goes, and in what, what probably is the most famous scene of this play, uh, the Queen Anne Richard scene, he proceeds to try in a beautiful display of tactics right. how he is going to, how is he going to win this woman to be his wife, having killed her previous husband and father-in-law, her beloved husband and father-in-law. So he tries multiple tactics. First of all, he claims that he didn't kill them. Right. <laughs> and that goes really well. Uh, yeah. She yeah. says, no, we all saw you kill them with your own yeah. sword. Your sword was dripping, okay? <laughs> and then he yeah. tries this odd line of tactics to say, well, your husband and father-in-law were so good that it's a I actually did a good thing for them. I sent them to heaven so they right. could be with God. They really deserve to be with God, not here on earth. Yep. And that doesn't really work for him. No, so no, then really. what's what's the ultimate... Where where does he land, Jackson? What's the line of tra the line of tactic that he tries? Well, he he offers his life. He offers the chance for her to kill him. Um, he gives her a dagger and says, "Well, then take my life. If you, if you can't stand me that much, kill me." And uh, she won't. And it's kind of this forcing of the breaking point uh, of 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 it all. And. And then he kind of he he does a little bit of the silver tongue thing. He does some compliments, but they're almost half-hearted in 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 the relief of of she didn't kill him when she had the chance. Well, and his claim is that he killed all of her former family because he was so in love with her. Right. Because her beauty, he was so in love with her beauty that he had to kill her husband and her father-in-law to help her to come to a better husband. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, that's the line. And then he says, you know, so this is sort of on you too, is really the, <laughs> is really the tactic. Don't you think that the real cause, which was your beauty, is really also at fault? So if you want to kill me for this, here you go. Here's a dagger. You should do it. And then he kneels and basically says, you either have to take up the dagger and kill me or take me up as your husband. That's where we are. <laughs> yeah. And? Kind of works. Um <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, for some reason, it works. Yeah, I think I, I think this is a moment that you can come at it with a whole bunch of different angles, right? And uh, and your angles will have a lot to do about the time and the and like time in history that you are. Um, certainly, power is in play. Richard is an extremely powerful person, um, and eventually that kind of intimidation can weigh on you. We can look at her later lines as well. Um, she has one other brief scene, and and she talks about how she's kind of mystified at herself for having fallen for him. Um, and, and we and we infer that there has been some continuation of the relationship. This is many scenes later, acts yeah, later. They're married. Yeah. Yep. We don't actually uh, see their wedding. She actually doesn't come back for many scenes till after they're married. Yeah. Yep. But but um but yeah, so so there's something in this moment that that flips her. I think the character admits that 
And uh, she's ultimately, I think, kind of ashamed of that as well. Absolutely. And the end of the scene isn't like a happy, we're going to go get married. She's in utter shock of where she's landed. And I think, too, if I were directing and coaching an actress in this particular moment, I like what you talked about, too, about the sense of power. You know, Queen Anne is a person whose whole family has been murdered. She has nothing. She has no one. She has no station. And Richard offers her a way to uh, to have a life continued after this moment. Um, after the murder of the Lancaster clan, she can join the York clan and at least have some path forward and not end up like Queen Margaret, roaming the streets in rags and grief. Yeah. This scene is is so famous because the, the exchanges are incredible. The dialogue for this scene is incredible. Here's, here's one example. Richard says, say I slew them not. Anne says, sentence say they were not slain, but dead they are and devilish slave by thee. I did not kill your husband. Why then he is alive. (laughs) Great things. And at one point she says, did you not kill this king? He says, I grant you. And a famously funny line, dost grant me, hedgehog. (laughs) (laughs) This sarcasm Ah. thing, oh, you grant me that, hedgehog. Yeah. Yep. And she's just like brutal throughout that that whole section too. Like the most that anyone is brutal with him throughout the play. There's one other scene um where where you get to see someone it seems like everyone is pretty afraid of Richard. Um afraid of his power. Somehow he is he is a, a unit un- a, has enough sway and influence that most people don't mess with him. The two people that do uh come at him verbally are Lady Anne and his young uh, nephew, who makes fun of him throughout. <laughs> there, there are odd, and some other characters do too. For example, his own mother is constantly That's true, yeah. uh, uh, constantly offering back to him uh, what he can give to her. Right. And then let, let's, let's keep going on this train, Jackson, of scenes where Richard convinces people to do things that they really should not do and yeah. are very, very perplexing. One later scene, the Queen Elizabeth, who was Richard's brother's wife, the York Queen before Richard, you know, claimed the throne. Queen Elizabeth has come to confront Richard about the killing of her husband and her two sons, the princes. So this is after Richard is king, after the war has started. Richard has killed the princes. Buckingham is defected. Finally, Queen Elizabeth, with some other women, comes to confront him. And Richard says basically, look, yeah, I killed your sons, but you should let me marry your daughter. He's already killed <laughs> off Anne at this point, by the right. way. You yep. should let me marry your daughter because then our my throne will be cemented. You'll be the mother of a queen again. And so this woman who's come to confuse and berate and confront this man who killed her sons is put in the position of that same man saying, let me marry your daughter. Right. Yeah, and 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 kind of put in the position, at least she admits towards the end of the scene that she will try to plead his case to her daughter. He he asks her how he should woo her daughter, which is just like super creepy. But um and it's it, it, and it's and it ends, at least the scene ends with that door kind of open. Again, not we're we're not we're this is not like a happy scene at the end. It's not like she's saying, "Okay, yeah, you're right. You should totally marry my daughter." Um, but by the end of the scene, 
it, it, the door seems to be open. Of course, we find out later that she has already agreed to let Elizabeth marry Richmond, and and this is this could be a bit of a ploy, um, given if if you know if depending on the timeline of different conversations. But I I like in my imagined timeline, I do not think at the point of this conversation she has agreed to let Elizabeth marry Richmond. In fact, I think the the messaging about Elizabeth marrying Richmond instead, the younger Elizabeth. Uh, probably comes as a result of this conversation. Sure, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're right. It doesn't end. Ha- I mean, just like the Queen Anne scene at the end of this conversation with Richard III, Queen Elizabeth seems bewildered that she's ended up where she is, and yeah. that she's agreed to this crazy thing. At one point, after Richard has really laid it all out, the whole rationale, the whole reason why she should do it, she just kind of says, "Should I be tempted by the devil?" And and you could play that line angry and sarcastic. Oh, should I be tempted by? But I don't think that's the right playing. I think that's a question to herself. Like, is am I gonna do? Can I can I do this? I think I because of this crazy silver tongued genius. I think I should. But how did I get here? Yeah, <laughs> I think that is that that is the kind of challenge for the actor playing Richard is how do you allow those two things to rest and just flip on a switch, right? Because the audience gets to see both. The audience gets to see how awful he is and how uh, manipulative silver-tongued he is. Many of the characters don't. Some of them get a pretty sharp view of them. For instance, uh, Elizabeth does. She he killed he killed her sons, and 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 she is somehow uh, allayed by his words into trying to consider whether or not her daughter should marry him or not. But this is a person who can ca- who carries both and can flip them on a switch. Richard is he can he can be. He can he can win people's hearts, or he can just remove them completely from the equation, in in equal aptitude. Well, yeah, and his relationships with the lords are exactly on the same boat. You know, he's he's friendly, shaking hands. He's he's charming. Uh, one thing that happens in like the first third of the play is that the queen's family and the lords that she's around and Richard's faction of lords are are at bitter ends. They hate each other, and so while he's alive, the King Edward, the York King Edward, wants to bring those two factions together to to make peace. And so there's a great scene where they all do and they all swear how much they're going to love each other. And Richard does as well. He swears at how much they're going to love each other. And then, you know, one, two, three scenes later, the king is dead and they have to go get the prince. And suddenly everybody's hand is kind of on their sword. Like, (laughs) who's going to go get the prince? And Richard does that thing again where he kind (laughs) of wins out in that silver-tongued, mad, genius use of tactics to manipulate he mm-hmm. ends up with him and a small faction, including the guys he wants to kill, going yep. to get the prince. And he wants it to be a very small group of people, mostly because in a small group of people, he can have the queen's friends arrested and later executed. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he and Buckingham uh, get them get them captured and executed. And that's that, that's a whole other like subplot line is that <laughs> three, three of these lords who are very loyal to the queen all die on pretty much the same move from from Richard which it, it's just like that that scene too in general that the when when the king king edward is trying to reconcile these two factions um is is another beat of mastery because underneath it all Richard has just killed his brother Clarence the duke of Clarence um 
and and he he's the only one who knows he's dead pretty much. So because he sent the murderers, he sent the murderers. <laughs> um, but the king had previously said that he wanted him to be killed and rescinded the order or there's there's some complication there. So there's there was an order sent from the king that was stopped. And uh, but Richard comes into the room and the queen then says in a in a, f- a further effort to reconcile these right, two this factions. Is after they've all made speeches about how they're going to love each other and how Richard is now on everybody's side. He's friends with everyone. Um, he's he's yep. asked an apology for all the negative things he said. And the queen says. The queen says, oh, this is so great. All this reconciliation is great. Let's bring Clarence in here and have him be a part of this reconciliation as well. And Richard flies into a rage. How dare you do this? Flaunt my brother's death to my face when you know that it was you that killed him. And and that and like, so oh, he, there, there's a great line there too. He says, "Who knows not that Clarence is dead?" Yeah. And one of the other characters says, "Who knows not? Who knows he is?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but in that one move, then he is again repositioned. Uh, the, the situation so that Elizabeth was this this person who threw the death of the brother in his face when well, he that, was there as to apologize. That's one of the tacti- tactics of Richard, right? And it probably comes some from his background of being uh, sort of a, a rejected, um, uh, not quite human person in the eyes of most people around him. He is brilliant at playing the victim. I mean, that scene is a great scene. He walks in knowing that he is going to get what he wants out of this situation by being the victim. By spurring someone else to mention Clarence, he can seem as if they have been flaunting in his face the death of his brother and be a victim. Later on, there's a great example of that too. Lord Hastings has decided that he is not on their side. He does not want to see Richard become king. So Richard needs to kill him off to get him out of the way. So what does he do? He pretends as if his arm, which has been withered since birth, has been newly cursed by Queen Elizabeth and her friends and basically says to Hastings, Queen Elizabeth did this. What are we going to do? And Hastings says, well, if they did this, and Richard is immediately the victim, if they did this, you're a traitor. You're on their side. You want all of us killed. We are being hurt by this traitor person right here. Chop off his head. Yep. <laughs> Which I think that scene, as long as we're right there, I, I think you're absolutely right that he he plays it so well. That scene, though, shows off, I think, how much assumed power the other lords have for him. Because both in, in the play itself, and I think at least in the Benedict Cumberbatch version, um, it's a tenuous argument at best. And the whole table kind of looks at him and, and is like, are you serious right now? <laughs> And and he, I mean, he lays his arm out on the table. Anyone would say, well, y- yeah, okay. So if you can prove that some witchcraft was used by Elizabeth, sure, we'll 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 go after her. Um, but and he, it's, it's one of those things that seems more tenuous now, probably than it did in the original writing of it, because we have now like a societal system where you have to prove the guilt. Of sure, people you yeah. accuse. But Richard at this point in the play is the Lord Protector. He is in the place of the king until a new king can be crowned. So, uh, you know, in this society at this time, his word goes. You don't say if when the king says someone did something. Really, because the king said this was Queen Elizabeth and her family, it becomes true. 
That's sort of, you know, that's the society. But now you're right, as we see it, the argument becomes more tenuous. And so productions like the Cumberbatch version and the McKellen version tend to play this as a scene where all the other lords suddenly have to pick sides. It's like, are we going to let this obviously ridiculous ploy continue on? Mm hmm. Yeah. And he says, everyone who's with me, stand up and follow me. And the assumption is anyone who's left here can die with Hastings. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, that a huge power move again by him where he absolutely uses this, this kind of perceived victimhood as, as a way to navigate around these, these other power players. Yeah, and, and then in the next scene or shortly thereafter, Hastings' head is brought to Richard. And, you know, the power is now there. Now, of course, what this has done is say to Buckingham, at any point, Richard could turn on you and at least starts to lay in Buckingham, his most close ally, Buckingham's mind that I could be killed just as easily as Hastings, which then later on, when Richard knows that uh, Buckingham is kind of hesitating and not really willing to kill the sons and he doesn't give Buckingham the earldom that he promised, Buckingham then re reflects and says, <laughs> oh man, remember what happened to Hastings? Yeah. I better get out of here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yep, he tries tries to bail. He unfortunately gets caught again. He and his, I believe he's he's uh, the Duke of of Buckingham is in is in Wales. So he brings his Welsh fighters and and alas loses and gets executed because he appears as a ghost later on in the play as well. And uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> poor Buckingham, poor Buckingham. <laughs> he he did so much for him, and yet he still wound up dead. Yeah. There's one there's a there's a feature of the play Jackson that I think is so interesting. Unfortunately, the McKellen version doesn't really include it as much and I think to its discredit, Margaret's curse. So this is the, the scene early on when all of the York family has gathered and they're all fighting and Queen Margaret comes in sort of from the shadows and they all turn on her. Again, Queen Margaret is the old Lancaster queen whose family was all murdered. And she lays on all of them a curse. We've talked about this. A curse that they're all going to die early. That their kingdom will be taken away from them. That they will see their families murdered as she saw her family murdered. She lays that curse. She says, I curse you with it. I curse you and I curse you especially especially Richard, for what you did. And then later on, Richard's mother, the the Duchess of York, the Queen of the York, the, the sort of the, um, not she's not a queen, but the, the mistress of the York house. Yeah. The, you know, she's she's the oldest, the, um, uh, what word am I looking, the matriarch, thank you, that's what I'm yeah. looking for, not mistress. The matriarch of the York house, she, Richard's mother, lays a curse on him too because he killed the two young princes. I love that symmetry. And if you're willing to look in plays like Richard III, some of these histories get a little dense. But if you're willing to look for some of the shining genius to come through, look at characters like that, that echo. Not only does the house of the matriarch of the house of Lancaster curse Richard, but then the matriarch of the house of York, his own family, comes to curse Richard later in the play. Yeah, that's that 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 symmetry of the two of them is so so cool like you you have and and to have the kind of holistic at the end of it having the holistic thing of okay the houses are allied by the end but prior to that both houses are allied in their curse of richard 
Right. Yeah. It, it, you know, the civil war that has taken up so many of the other histories and is now landed at Richard's door now that a Lancaster Richmond from France has come to try to claim the throne from Richard. Both houses are united in their curse of Richard III. <laughs> and of course, throughout the play, the characters, especially the ones that are about to die, bemoan how Queen Margaret's curse that they would die early and lose their kingdom has fallen on their heads. And right. Richard is never quite that introspective at the end of his life that the curse of Queen Margaret and the Duchess of York has fallen on his head. But of course, it's clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a, a pretty extensive ghost scene where everyone comes and talks at him again as he's trying to sleep the night before the big climactic battle. And he w- wakes up and, it, and you're right. It's not like an admission of, oh man, I guess I was wrong. It's Dang it, conscience. <laughs> well, no, it. it's, yeah, it's a great monologue where he he's literally wrestling back and forth with whether he's a murderer or not. Yeah. He go and he he's undecided through the monologue. This question of look at all the things that I've done, the blood on my hands. Am I bad? No, I'm not bad. I'm the king. I you know, I did what I did for me. That's perfectly fine. No, it's not perfectly fine. Look at all these people that I've killed. Mhm. Yeah, which which interestingly mirrors a little scene long long prior where the two murderers who he hired when he went who went to kill his brother Clarence have a very similar discussion about conscience and whether it's the right thing to kill this guy a in his sleep or not kill him at all kill him for money kill him uh, together kill him when he's looking at them or not it's a kind of a comedic scene uh, between the two of them as they're kind of parsing out what is the morality of all this death, um, which which pr- provides an interesting relief to then at the end having the king wonder kind of similar things about the deeds that he has done. Well, yeah, and, and then, of course, at, at the conclusion of that monologue after the long dream of all the ghosts and after this monologue about how am I guilty or not the night before the battle, the question he poses uh, to Ratcliffe in the script, uh, some adaptions choose to have Catsby be the person that he asks, I think that might be a more uh, a, a more story level choice to have Catsby sure. do it because Catsby's more closely aligned with him than Ratcliffe is. But whoever you choose, he asks Ratcliffe or Catsby as he's getting armored for the war, "Will all our friends prove true?" And and that's what you know that question for Richard is maybe the end question of his life. Do I are will the consequences of my butchery? be that that I am alone utterly and the answer is yes yeah he is mm-hmm. and he knows that he is too he knows it when stanley defects and doesn't show up with his soldiers he knows it when he's stumbling around the battlefield my kingdom for a horse right. my kingdom for a horse he's alone no one will offer him the aid that he needs to catsby tries and even catsby he throws off in a rage he's a, he's once again alone and cursed my kingdom for a horse my kingdom for a horse and the just the brilliant look at that's how he started the play, you know? <laughs> yeah. He yep. starts to play this alone. Uh, he, the reason he claims he's going to be a villain is that he's not well-liked because of who he is enough to be a hero. So he'll be yep. a villain. And at the end of the play, that proves true. He's just simply not well-liked enough to be the hero of the battle. He has right. no He has no allies. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the kind of end of his monologue after he wakes up from the ghost dream is there is no creature who loves me. Uh, and, and if I die, no soul, will, no soul will pity me. So 
Like that is he he is he is very aware of it. And and still, and I think this is this is maybe the tragic flaw, but in, in other situations, this would be a really virtuous thing. In the face of all that, he still shows up and does the thing he was planning to do. <laughs> well, and th- that's a great point because I love this quote. I, I have marked to talk about this quote. Um, sometimes when I direct more classical works, I like to put quotes on the poster because it allows people to reflect on some of the highlighting lines in context of the theme. For example, when Jackson and I directed Faustus, on our poster there was the famous Faustus line, he who lives for pleasure must for pleasure fall. This might be the line I would choose as the core line of the play. Whether you put it on the poster or not, I don't know. But this, for me, might be the core play, and it, it affects this too, the sense that even when he knows... Ultimately, he can't win anymore. He shows up to try to enact these plans. He says this uh, in Act 4. This is as he's trying to decide whether or not to kill the two princes um, that are no lo- that are innocent now and can't hurt him, but he wants them dead anyway. He says this. I am in so far in blood that sin will pluck on sin. Hmm. I am in so far in blood. There's so much blood on my hands that there's nothing to do but continue. Right. Sin will pluck on sin. I am in so far in blood that sin will pluck on sin. Yeah. There is no mart. I mean, Richard sets in motion from the very first soliloquy a sequence of events, sequence of events that he he cannot turn around. He's in so far in sin. From the beginning, the first scene is his is him sending Clarence off to the tower, pretending that it's the brother, but knowing that it was him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and saying that I, I will kill you soon, brother. Don't worry. <laughs> saying to the audience that I will kill you soon. Oh, yeah, it's a great reflection because <laughs> we've just seen him tell Clarence, I'm going to go fight for you to get out. Why are you? This is an outrage that you're being sent to prison. We'll get you out of it. And then Clarence is hauled off to the tower and Richard turns to the audience and says, I love you so much, brother, that soon I'm going to send you to heaven. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that's got to be close to the end of our time for this one. This what a, what a great foray into Shakespeare for the first time. What a you know a, a, ri- a really rich story full of lots of history. If you want to get into the history, but if you don't enjoy the history, what a great set of characters for you to interact with as well. A lot of great you know flaws and interactions with each other, and so many as we said we we were talking prior to this. It's just impossible to you know, bookmark all of the different quotes from this play. There are so many really well-constructed lines, great thoughts, fully sussed out, and and machinations and manipulations used throughout this play. Yes, if you take the time to read through the play or watch the play, you're going to find yourself going, this play is the play that that line is from? I hear that <laughs> line all over. Not, I mean, of course, now is the winter of our discontent is said by everybody in every piece of art ever. <laughs> right. I mean, that <laughs> That's part of a cultural lexicon, but you'll find quotes from this forever and ever. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's that world that Shakespeare created where a villain is also the protagonist. Right. And the, the, the quandary that that creates in you to watch Richard envelop his plans that are the subject that, that are the journey we're supposed to be on. <laughs> it's incredible. 
It's yeah, yeah, you're along for the ride. <laughs> so so when you do go along for the ride, whether you're reading it or in the play or if you get on, as we said, the Hollow Crown is on Amazon and it's like quite affordable to buy both of the seasons of it. And they're really well done versions of all of these histories. When you interact with this play, we would love to continue this conversation with you. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at NoScript Podcast is the username for that. We also have an email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to continue the conversation with you and, 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 you know, include your perspectives into this play that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, but can somehow keep getting new and different perspectives placed on it. Absolutely. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, one of the best things you can do for us, besides going to Patreon and supporting us as a patron, that's the best thing. But the second best thing is to share this episode on your social media, share it with your friends, tell people about it. If you know scripts, you probably know people. Or if you like scripts, you probably know people that like scripts. Those are the order that those words go in. Uh, <laughs> look, we, we just want to keep expanding the NoScript community. It's amazing to us. Episode to episode, the listenership grows. So that's been a fantastic uh, journey for us on this podcast. We hope you'll help us grow. You can find the podcast on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, or on Podbean where it's hosted. One of the easiest places to find it is on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram where we post a link to the new episode every Monday. Yeah, and until next Monday when we're coming at, at you with another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Episode 50 of No Script, the podcast is Number in the books. 50. Woohoo! We'll see you <laughs> for 51. Yeah, yeah. See ya.